Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children coming down the road behind us. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. Before I begin, as usual, I want to remind you all that we have a wonderful volunteer, Charlie Fabian, who is ready and willing to process any suggestions you have as to material for us to cover, items to look at for potential bases of segments of this show. You can reach him at any time. Email, here we go, charlie.info438 at gmail.com. Charlie, spelled C-H-A-R-L-I-E, charlie.info438 at gmail.com. I want to devote today's program to something that has been in the air now for several years, getting all kinds of attention from the President of the United States and the leaders around the world on down to all the rest of us. It is something claimed to be going on. It is also sometimes claimed to be the goal of the policies of the United States, China, and other parts of the world. It has a name. It's called decoupling. And here's the idea that once upon a time over recent decades, we had what was called globalization, a kind of global re this reconstruction, you might even say, of the economy, where we all became interdependent one upon the other, every corner of the world tied in, linked in, intertwined with every other. And with that background, the argument goes, we are now in what might also be called the opposite of globalization, namely decoupling disconnecting of the major players, the United States and China, now recognized as the two major economies in the world, dwarfing, by comparison, all others, which is roughly true. And that these two economies, these two economic giants, are disconnecting with one another, decoupling. Here in the United States, where I function, this is talked about as though it were the policy of the United States government. Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, has pretty much said so. So have many others. When it has been pointed out that this doesn't seem to be going on anywhere except in the minds and mouths of these officials, they walk it back a few steps and refer not to decoupling, but to de-risking. This is a making something out of nothing because it's really not different. The idea is we are not going to risk being coupled with China, and we presume the same on their side. I want to argue that this is an important topic, but I want to do so by beginning with a clear sentence. It's false. It's not true. It is an ideological argument. It's public relations 
it's appearing to be doing something you think your public wants to see you do if you're a leader, but it's not something you can do or even want to do or even dare to do. That's the reality, and I'm going to make that case because it's very, very important about our future, including our ability to survive into the future. Here we go. Is it going on? Is it in fact the case that the United States and China, and alongside them their respective allies, are disconnecting one from the other in a major, meaningful sense? I think the answer to this is a straight-out no. The trade between the United States and China continues. There's no dramatic reduction at all. In many cases, no reduction, in fact, expansion. Likewise, the flow of investments from America into China continue and grow. And likewise, the flow of investments from China into the United States continue to grow. The businesses that are involved, both private and public enterprises, shrug their shoulders when asked, Gee, how is what you're doing consistent with decoupling or de-risking? They shrug their shoulders as if to say, that's politician speak. There's nothing to do with us. Let me get at this same point in another way. We've had efforts at decoupling, verbal announcements. Donald Trump, in the four years he was president, waged what he called tariff wars and trade wars against China. If so, it's very hard to define winners and losers of this war. The Biden administration basically continued most of what Trump began, indicating that Republicans and Democrats both like to talk about decoupling and to show their ideological muscles by talking it up and asserting that they were punishing China. Trump made a fool of himself by constantly telling the people that it was the Chinese who paid the tariffs that he attached to Chinese imports not understanding, as every freshman in college economics classes understands, that tariffs are paid by the importers, and those would be American companies, not the Japanese, and not the Chinese either. My apologies. Then there was the attack on the Huawei Corporation. There we were slapping the Chinese, arresting the executives, That didn't make any difference either. Huawei went on to do very well and recently announced that it had come up with a new supercomputer chip as good or better than anything made in the United States, which goes to show you it didn't make much difference. And Huawei is finding customers all over the world for the chips that will be used to produce the goods that the Americans will import the way they always have. 
There isn't much to it when you look close. Then there's the public relations stunts. Trump did it. Biden does it. Their officials do it. It goes like this. You stand in front of cameras with a shovel in your hand somewhere in the United States, and you talk about reshoring. You know what that means? Taking an enterprise that once was abroad and bringing it home. Yes, there are some examples of that happening, just like there continue to be lots more examples of movement the other way. Decoupling, de-risking, it's mostly a fraud. And one of the key reasons, and an important point I want to make here, is that this is a result of the deliberate efforts of the People's Republic of China since the Communist Revolution, and especially since the 1970s, when they re-entered, you might say, the world economy. Here's what they've tried to do, which, by the way, many countries try to do. They just haven't been as successful as the Chinese. They look around the world and they say, wow, the United States, Western Europe, the powerhouse, the G7, US, UK, France, Germany, Italy, Canada, Japan, they really have the world economy sewn up. They produce everything. They sell it around the world. They have distribution systems in place. How are we, relative newcomers, having been colonies or semi-colonies before, now we're independent, how are we going to break into a world economy dominated by the capitalist West? Well, the answer, and by the way, Japan did this a few decades earlier. What you have to do is come up with the following. You have to either find new things to produce, that's kind of hard, people's tastes around the world having been shaped by 300 years of Western capitalist development, or, and here's where it goes, you have to produce what the West is already producing at a better quality or a lower price, or best of all, both. And that's what they set out to do. And what we're viewing is a world economy changing because one of them has done it in a way and at a speed never seen before, the People's Republic of China. Other countries are doing it. Vietnam is doing it to pick one. Bangladesh in its way to pick another. And there are many others. Mexico is another one. But the Chinese outshine them all. The Chinese went to work to become the export powerhouse of the world economy, producing virtually everything, either better quality or lower price or both. And if you have a capitalist world economy of competing buyers and sellers, the action is going to go where the quality is the best and the prices are the lowest, and that has been China. So what China has done is challenge the West. The decoupling noise 
is mostly noise as people come to terms slowly and with much denial, come to terms with what the Chinese have achieved, which is a powerhouse status. And there are reasons why it wasn't seen before. I'm going to give you a couple. The Chinese could produce good or better quality at a lower price, but that still left them with a problem. How do you distribute? How do you let even people know in a practical way that you have something that's a better quality at a lower price? You need a distributor. China found distributors in the capitalist West, where the market was. Walmart is unthinkable without China. Walmart's rise to be the dominant retail outlet in the United States was possible because they brought to the American people the better quality, lower price Chinese output, which could never have reached the United States market, could never have found the buyers without the partnership with Walmart, which they don't want to see end and which they do nothing to undercut. They rather undercut any reality to decoupling because it's not good for their bottom line. So no, we're intertwined more than ever. And cosmetic efforts to undo that go nowhere. They haven't under Trump, they haven't under Biden, and they don't appear to be. When we come back after the mid program break, I will talk with you about the implications of a decoupling that isn't happening, because that's what's going to shape our future. We've come to the end of the first half of today's program. Please stay with us. We will be right back with a continuation of this focal discussion of U.S., China, and the world economy. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. I've been talking about decoupling with you, and I've tried to argue in the first half of today's show that decoupling is a mirage, is a make-believe, is a posturing of politicians, but not an underlying reality. With an argument like that, it, it is necessary for me to answer the question that I'm hoping is in your mind, namely, why the pretense? Why go through all of this noisy, decoupling, de-risking nonsense when the underlying reality is as I've described it? It's a very important question, and I'm going to answer it. First, this conversation allows the people who use it a kind of arrogant superiority at least in their minds. What do I mean? Well, this notion of decoupling, especially when you put it as a policy objective of the United States from the president on down, implies a wonderful notion that isn't true, but it is very comforting, that the United States and its allies 
are in a very powerful position. They can simply decouple from the rest of the world, parts of it, all of it, because we are so powerful and so self-sufficient that when we decouple, it will not have a serious impact on us. It might make a problem for them, which may make them change their ways, you know, because they're going to suffer, but we aren't. This isn't true, but it makes you feel powerful. And it once was true. When, for example, after the Russian Revolution in 1917, the United States and Western countries refused to trade with the Russians, refused to buy things from them, sell things to them, it hurt. It hurt the Russians, not much the United States or Western Europe. Russia had been too poor to be a major market for much of anything. Even after the communists seized power in their revolution in China in 1949, one could put aside the economic relationships with China because of its poverty and despite its huge size. So there were in the past situations where a super powerful United States and its allies could decouple from the rest of the world and think that causes them a lot of grief, but not so much here. But this isn't true anymore. The 1980s and 1990s and the first decade of this century have, have been times when everything we own and buy in our country is indirectly or directly using up Chinese products. The Chinese economy is everywhere. Even when we're talking about trade between the United States and parts of Asia, Africa, Latin America, if you look closely at what is bought from that country there, it turns out that's bought from them because they have a way of using Chinese inputs in the production of what we in America buy from them. The lines of dependency, the supply chains, whatever you want to call them, are deep, long built up over decades and not at all dispensable. And I won't even go in to the rare earths, as they're called, that are only found under the surface of China and nowhere else and that are crucial for modern economies. There's yet another way this decoupling is a kind of ideological cover. And this has to do with the way capitalism develops, which we need to keep in mind here not to be fooled. Capitalism, as Karl Marx taught, is a system that develops unevenly. It always has. Profit draws investment to a particular place. It grows, it develops, and after a while, the rate of profit falls in the places where investment is concentrated, leading investment to go someplace else where it hasn't fallen yet. You all know that because it's the history of capitalism everywhere. Again, I'm going to use the United States. 
Once upon a time, the center of capitalism in the United States was in New England. The states of Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, uh, maybe into the mid-Atlantic, Pennsylvania. And then later, industry faded there. Many of the towns and cities in New England today have standing brick factories that have not been used for many decades. They sit there as monuments to capitalism's uneven development. Then we had an explosion of industry in what we now call the Midwest. Youngstown, Ohio, where I was born, was once the center of a thriving industry of iron and steel manufacture feeding into the automobile explosion in Detroit, the center of American capitalism for much of the second half of the 20th century. Now, Detroit is a disaster city, large parts of it uninhabitable. Same for my hometown, Youngstown, for much of that area. But why? Because capitalism develops unevenly. It went to the South, the Southwest, California, and so on. Well, you know, the unevenness is not contained inside the United States. It's international. The last 40 years have seen uneven capitalism move out of the United States to other parts of the world that were as eager to attract American capitalists as Midwesterners were to attract the New England capitalists or the California folks to attract the Midwestern capitalists. So that happened. Capitalism moved where the profits took it. They did that inside U.S. boundaries, and they did it globally. I want to stress, there's no conspiracy here unless you think of capitalism as a conspiracy. It's the way the system works. It's true if you don't like the outcome, for example, the reality we're talking about, which is that capitalists left their old centers, North America, Western Europe, Japan, and moved to the more profitable new centers, China, India, Brazil, and so on. And you know, this was a conscious deal made by both sides. Just as the Midwestern politicians created conditions they hoped would lure the New England industrialists to move to the Midwest, which they did, so it is equally true that the Chinese leadership the communist leadership in power since 1949 went to work to lure capitalists from Western Europe, North America, and Japan to move to China, which they did. And here was the deal, lest anyone have any illusion. The Chinese offered two vital advantages. Number one, 
a disciplined labor force, much cheaper than the labor force in Western Europe, North America, and Japan. Number two, being a huge country, developing itself rapidly, they offered the fastest growing market for goods and services that the world had and has because it's continuing. Every capitalist knows that if you want a future, you go where the wages are the lowest and the market is the fastest growing. And that's been the People's Republic of China. So the Chinese said, we'll make you a deal. We'll give you, the capitalists in Western Europe, North America, and Japan, we'll give you access to our cheap Chinese labor and our rapidly going, growing Chinese market. In return, we want you to bring your investments into China and, where applicable, your advanced technology also. It is childish not to understand that this policy, which now has created the powerhouse of the Chinese economy, is either something odd, something strange, something secret, something conspiratorial. It's none of those things. It is the normal workings of capitalism's intrinsic, uneven development. But if you can't admit that, if you don't want to tell the American people that the rise of China and the relative decline of the United States are a product of capitalism because you fear that the conclusion, correct conclusion, will be drawn that if you don't like the outcome, it's the system you got to change. Well, then you have nothing to come up with except a conspiracy that the Chinese are stealing technology. They made the deal clear. Nobody held a gun to anybody's head. You went to China, you shared your technology because you got cheap labor and a growing market, and you didn't have to go, and you went because you made a lot of money doing it. And that's the story of capitalism anyway, all the time, everywhere. Okay, now the conclusion. Once upon a time, there was a country that tried to stop this capitalist process. It was called Great Britain, and it was angry that a small colony in North America didn't want to play ball. They wanted their own development. They wanted unevenly to grow. So there was a war. But the little colony won the war, the Independence War, creating the United States. The British lost. In 1812, they tried again, and they lost again. And the United States decoupled, not at all. It intertwined with the British economy. The United States' great export, cotton. The British economy's great import, cotton. The British economy's great export, cotton textiles, clothing. That's how the British Empire became as powerful as it did, an intertwined, not decoupled. Well, 
Will the United States go to war with China the way the British went to war with the United States with nuclear arms? That's pretty stupid for both of them. So maybe, maybe we can hope for, and maybe we can even expect that wiser, calmer heads will prevail, especially in the West. Come to terms with the Chinese, work out a sharing, live and let live in the world economy. The alternative is too horrible to consider. Stop playing games with decoupling and de-risking. Spend your time working out your differences so that we can survive into a livable future one way or the other. We've come to the end of today's show. Thank you as always. And I look forward, as always, to speaking with you again next week.